Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. My guest today is a three times James Beard Award winner for her six cookbooks and food writing. For her latest project, Anya von Bremsen combines a travelogue with an investigation into foods that qualify as national dishes. Portofeu in Paris, pizza and pasta pomodoro in Naples, ramen and rice in Tokyo, tapas in Seville, and mole in Oaxaca. In her book, National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home, she embeds herself into these places and explores the culture that surround food and place, and finds that, like many cultures, the icons of the society are more mythological, invented, and fabricated than authentic. It's an exploration of food that combines history, economics, ethnicity, and nationalism, politics, and globalization for good and ill. Anya von Bremsen has written cookbooks on Spanish food, great dishes around the world, and a Russian cookbook from her childhood home. She has served as a contributing editor at Travel and Leisure and Food and Wine, and has written for Savure, uh, The New Yorker, and Foreign Policy. She's my guest today on Studio Tulsa. Anya von Bremsen, welcome to Studio Tulsa. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. As a reader, I delved into this book, your national dish, thinking, oh, this is going to be a wonderful book about how foods became the national dish. I'll learn about the origins. And then I opened the pages, and then the very first story in Paris of Portefeu, nobody cooks it anymore. And all of a sudden, I'm learning about politics and nationalism and globalization and economic inequality. Did you have any idea that you were opening these doors when you began this journey about these national foods? To some extent, I did, and that's what interested me about this, because before that, I, I wrote six cookbooks, and I love writing cookbooks and recipes and you know short descriptions of the dishes, but I was always feeling dissatisfied. I was always feeling there's a larger story behind what we eat, and it involves exactly what you just said, uh, climate change, globalization. I mean, everything that we eat is social and political and historical, besides just being delicious. And uh, I wanted to do something that would be lively and personal, so it's ultimately a travelogue, but that would also just open, show the reader how many different fascinating doors uh, food, the conversation about food opens up. What's interesting is uh, opening the book in Paris with uh, the classic French beef stew, portefeuille, and all of a sudden you're talking to people and people are going, eh, you know, like this is so yesterday, That is, this is hidebound and we have new food traditions and even great chefs who you would expect to be, who have come up in that tradition of, of the French model of cooking, they're kind of thumbing their nose at, at portefeuille. There was so much about French food culture that was so overbearing. It was all so full of rituals and protocols and a sense of its own supremacy. And I feel like, you know, first, first of all, Paris has really become a globalized city. Where I was staying for the research was the 13th arrondissement. And it's completely like my neighborhood in New York, which is totally multicultural. So it was like this Moroccan, Vietnamese neighborhood, you know, with all these different foods. And the younger French are really embracing the world in a way that I thought was extremely positive. 
And um, they didn't exactly reject Potiphar, and they didn't reject their heritage. Obviously, they're very proud of it. But uh, they like this kind of new global conversation. And honestly, people love Paris. Me, I always found it so oppressive, exactly for that reason. I said, Paris is the world's greatest city if you don't talk to the people or eat the food. <laughs> <laughs> and my boyfriend was like, stop saying this. But now I find it much more open to the world. And embracing other flavors is part of that openness. So how do you view a, a meal like a pot de feu? Part of their heritage? Or could you even qualify it as a national food at this particular point? I think it was elevated. Uh, the reason that dishes become, certain dishes become national dishes, there's a lot of process that goes into it. Because, for instance, you know, how do you, you have 20 different contenders and how does one dish become important, you know? And Potafa, so many writers, French writers wrote about it. Balzac, Flaubert, you know, the great classics of French literature. It was taught to young ladies um, in the 19th century like in home economics classes, it sort of represented that whole idea of the French Republic because it's a dish of broth, vegetables, and meat all in one pot, eaten without much ceremony. And it kind of represented the whole idea of fraternity, equality uh, from the French Revolution. So it was a perfect symbol of France in a way. But symbols change and people change and cultures change. And one very interesting example, for instance, is Britain. The British national dish, what was it before? Roast beef. Right. That's, you know, written in literature. You know, the British actually were called roast beefs, right? <laughs> uh, but then very savvily, as Britain became multicultural and more open and kind of wanted to transmit a different image of itself to the world, it swapped its national dishes and that became chicken tikka masala, <laughs> which is a curry. Uh, so and that kind of was an almost a top-down thing, right? Uh, of how like it wanted to represent itself to the world. So all these processes are so interesting, and so complex and so rich, and that's what my book National Dish is ultimately dedicated to, so, you know, uncovering what happens with these dishes that we think we've known all our lives. What's interesting is that I was reading a, that section of the book. I was thinking of. When I was a child growing up here in the American South, you know, Sunday dinner was the sort of landmark meal. And it was pot roast, roast mm -hmm. beef, or fried chicken dinner. And I would wonder today how often those appear on a table at all. You know, occasionally they do, but, but certainly not to that degree of it was pretty much a regular staple throughout the South that one of those things were usually a lot of times fried chicken dinner and nobody makes chicken at home anymore, practically. <laughs> so this is something that shows a sign here in our own culture of how food tastes and how we go about doing food changes. Our sense of who we are changes, right? Like think of, think about barbecue, uh, like with this recent important conversations about race, uh, there's all this new histories about barbecue and uh, what it reflects, you know, and the kind of the conversation around it changes so much uh, to include slavery, to include this, you know, complicated racial issues. And that, that's really important. The conversation about food, as I argue in National Dish, is just as important 
as the food itself. And these conversations change. It's interesting you bring up barbecue because in your next city, Naples, pizza has somewhat uh, of the, the same arc, if you will, of American barbecue in a lot of ways. Barbecue was a food of necessity. It was it was getting the, the least desirable cuts of meat, smoking them to the point they were palatable and edible. And pizza was, again, it was a, it was a food of poverty. I mean, there's so many fascinating things about pizza. But Naples was one of the most crowded cities. Like in the 19th century, it had 10 times the urban density of Victorian London. Imagine wow. that. And Victorian London was pretty crowded already. Uh, so, like, and what, and a lot of the people were poor, and they, they lived in these houses called Bassi, which were just, like, very tiny and didn't have cooking facilities. And most people lived, semi-lived on the street because it's a warm climate. And so what do you eat that costs only one soldo, which is, you know, equivalent of one cent? Pizza. So pizza was called by one Neapolitan writer the first aid of the stomach. And <laughs> the other fascinating thing about pizza, it was really not known outside of Naples. If you had to talk about pizza, you had to really explain what it was. Because pizza is a generic term for something that means crushed flat. Like it could mean a cake, for you know, a flat cake, for instance, right? Um, and those northern, yeah, northern Italian travelers who did discover it, like Carlo Collodi, the writer who created Pinocchio, mm. he just poured dirt on it. He said, it's something that reminds me of complicated filth. <laughs> Imagine, right? So pizza doesn't really become popular until the 20th century. And one of the reasons it became so popular is because so many Italians fled from the chaos and poverty of, uh, that ensued after the unification of Italy in the 1860s, that they ended up in the Americas, South and North America, and eventually they started opening pizzerias. And here, pizza really took off, and it became this big sensation. And it was kind of re-imported to Naples. Uh, I mean, they continued eating it, but with that sense of sort of national pride uh, or regional pride, I would say, and uh, kind of reevaluated. And uh, this was another part of the story that, that emerges is that the stories we have about these foods that are sort of iconically tied to place are more myth than true. And that goes along with pizza, the story of the marguerite pizza. Uh, of course, still, we love to eat that today. And there is a big elaborate story of how it came to be in Naples and of course, the truth is, like a lot of stories, it's it's a fable. It's 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 a myth. Right. It's uh, it's about a queen, you know, who had a pizza delivered to her, and she loved it and was in the tricolor, tricolor, you know, the three colors of the Italian flag, and she allowed it to be named after her, and that's why it's called Margarita. Of course, you know, there's no uh, recording of any incident that took place in the palace of her ordering a pizza. But uh, these, these myths, they thrive for a purpose. You know, either they're important to the agenda of the particular restaurant that wants to promote it, as is in this case, Pizzeria Brandi. But it also was an important story because the queen was from the north and she came to the south, which was just become part of the Italy, unified Italy. 
And it kind of signaled that you know, Italy was a unified country. And here's a northern queen enjoying a southern delicacy, a southern specialty. So all these, you know, there's all these agenda, all these hidden agendas and all those promotional things. It's really fascinating how that works in food, all this branding that's going on. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting th- parts of, of the book is that we think of these as national dish, but really what, what your book points out is these are tied to a more specific place, that pizza was considered a food of poverty. It's now been reimagined and rediscovered, and now you have celebrities coming to Naples to get the true pizza experience. And it, it goes to show you that there's so many cultural divides in these places that we think of them as having national identity. And of course, when you look at the history, that national identity is relatively short, in some cases shorter than the United States, where we certainly have our share of cultural differences. No, well, the whole idea of a nation is is fairly short. So we think that France always existed, Italy always existed, Japan, because they spoke the language, nothing like it at all. Uh, there was some, um, Italy was created in the 1860s. France went from being a monarchy, a kingdom that belonged to a king, to a republic in the modern sense of the word, only with the French Revolution, which was uh, 1789. Basically kind of giving the rest of the world the idea, or an ideal of what a nation should be. So obviously national cuisine, if the nation is so short, I mean, there was no Turkey in, until 1923, the republic was created. There was no Ukraine or Uzbekistan as independent nations until the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was when, 91, yeah. right? 1991. So this is how recent it all is. But once a nation is formed, it needs a national cuisine. And uh, some of these things are, are still happening and they were happening recently, and it's it's just so interesting how these things are happening and how quickly they take off. Now, in Naples, you went to uh, the, I guess it's, is it the Spanish Quarter? Is that how that would translate? Yeah. The Spanish Quarter, very densely housed, still a lot of poverty there, very overcrowded area. And this is sort of the birthplace, if you can call it that, for pizza, and tried to make your own pizzas. What did you learn about this food from living there in that quarter with those people that have, you know, this is this is their staple in many ways? Well, it's really interesting to see the kind of the urgency that still exists around pizza. I mean, I guess these people, you know, in that quarter could eat anything, but, you know, going through these narrow streets, you always would think, thought that you were going to get hit by a motorino, by a motorcycle, and most of them were pizza deliveries. And it still costs around three euros, you know, like three and a half bucks. And it's so delicious. And it just made me think, you know what, I could just live there for for the rest of my life. I love pizza. I love Neapolitan pizza. So my my very unsophisticated takeaway is like, bring it on. I love it. Oh. My guest today is Anya von Bremsen, noted food writer. She's the author of six cookbooks and a memoir. Her latest book is titled National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home. It's published by Penguin, and she's my guest today on Studio Tulsa. Well, from Naples, you travel to Tokyo, and you would think, oh, monolithic culture, absolutely. Ramen, nope, ramen doesn't 
ramen doesn't even necessarily come from Japan, does it? No, it's it's a Chinese dish, you know, lo, lo mein, noodle dish, oh. Chinese noodle dish that uh, first began thriving in uh, the Chinatowns of Japan around 1920s. Um, and it was kind of like the pizza story. It was sort of disrespected. It was a cheap carb, right, that could feed uh, a lot of workers. And then it became really important uh, after the war, after World War II, as Japan uh, went through a reconstruction boom, and there was just so many workers, and it kind of fed the country. And the Japanese almost sort of crowded uh, a national dish for the service that it created. And then in the 1950s, you have this guy called Momofuku Ando, who was actually born in Taiwan. He wasn't <laughs> even Japanese, right? And he invents this instant noodles. And the instant noodles really sort of not just change Japan, it changes the world because, I mean, what could be easier, right, than, than just adding water and then suddenly you have a meal. So that a lot of these dishes, pizza among them, are just genius inventions. You know, the instant noodles was invented by a particular guy. Pizza was kind of the child of poverty, as the Neapolitans like to say. But they're just like this easy, delicious, cheap carbs that fed, you know, their cities and fed their countries. Uh, and then in the 90s, you kind of get this gourmet revolution. And they're so easily customized with different toppings, different ingredients, different additions. So you have like this base, uh, base carb, whether it's noodles or the crust of the pizza. And then you can do whatever you want with this. And that's just kind of magical. In the case of ramen, uh, you know, there are the high-end ramen joints and the, you know, medium-low-end joints. And then then you have convenience stores, at which you tell, you know, the little corner stores that offer 30 varieties of ramen and, and it's constantly changing. And you get into the sort of economics of, of how Japan uh, and, and the various uh, little stores all competing there for this business are like fine-tuning, uh, you know, computer algorithms on on how to, uh, you know, how their sales are going, how they devise what they're going to put in, in their stores next. I mean, this was a wonderful little aside that you took us into, and the book is full of those sort of asides. Thank you so much. Now, the Japanese, they're called konbini, and, you know, they're not like little mom-and-pop stores. They're big chains. The three main chains is 7-Eleven. Uh, Lawson and Family Mart. And, you know, they were based on the American convenience store model franchise. Uh, but then at a certain point, they went through like these basic stores, you know, where you would you know, go after a drunken night and pick up a cheap bento box to this kind of incubators of Japanese taste because there's so many of them. And the footfall, I mean, the, the, the number of people who visit them is so incredible that they really amount to places that dictate, you know, this national Japanese taste. And the turnover is absolutely brutal. If a product doesn't perform, it's just sacked, you know, almost within weeks. Uh, because, yeah, there's this, you know, at the cash register, there's this input system. One one convenience worker showed it to me. You know, you say the customer's age, approximate age, gender, the location of the store, what they bought, uh, and they send this data back to the to the products manufacturing, 
and if even sometimes weather they report. So like they know all this data and they know exactly what the Japanese want in Osaka or in Tokyo, in this particular neighborhood, in this particular day, you know, rainy day. It's kind of like sci-fi. <laughs> it was really interesting. Well, as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, ramen uh, is an import from China. Uh, and you actually looked at, you know, uh, Japanese white rice uh, while you were in Tokyo. And you find out, oh, until the mid-1800s, white rice wasn't necessarily a, a staple in Japan. It was a, it was really a product of, of uh, the modernization era in the 19th century when all of a sudden Japan says, we need to have a more healthy population so we can compete globally. And, uh, and all of a sudden rice is used as, again, that carbohydrate that will, you know, give us energy, uh, you know, make a more healthier population. Yeah, and as, a Japan, as well as a Japanese national symbol, because if ramen is something, that's why I looked at both of them. Ramen is something imported and borrowed, right, from China. Whereas, you know, the whole idea of the rice paddy, it's so important to the Japanese self sense of self, you know, rice farming. But a lot of it is kind of fabricated as well, as I discovered, because until uh, rice farming became industrial, um, farmers themselves couldn't even afford it. They ate dark grains. Mm. This is fascinating. Another thing that's fascinating that I discovered in national dish, you know, so many of the white foods, white bread, white rice, white pasta, white, you know, all those bleached refined products were status symbols and expensive because until the industrial era, they were so difficult, you know, it just, you had this extra step of having to hulling and bleaching rice or grain. Um, and they were only affordable to the rich, essentially, mm. while the poor people subsisted on dark grains. Yes, it is interesting. Well, as you're going through uh, the areas you visited, you went to Seville for tapas and you learned all about the intricacies of Spanish ham and you visited a, a pig farm, uh, where they're out munching acorns out in nature, and uh, that was a wonderful story. Uh, but but meanwhile, you, you're sort of this, as a reader, you're getting this sense that all these national dishes that I associate with a place and and a culture, you know, it's it's sort of a made up history, if you will, or and it, it was it was done for political purposes, or you know, as a unifying uh, effort to to you know control the population, and then all of a sudden you get to Oaxaca. And there you get the real national food, or at least that's how I read it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the Oaxaca, I look at mole, which is this complicated yes. multi-ingredient stew that represents with you know so many Spanish and so many indigenous elements. It represents mestizaje, the fusion you know between uh, colonial and indigenous cultures. But I also I also look at the corn or the maize tortilla which is a real sort of symbol of indigenous Mexico. But there you have a dark history as well, yes. like pizza, like ramen. Um, when the colonists arrived in Mexico in the 1500s, they brought Catholicism and they kind of wanted to convert the local indigenous population to eating wheat, to eating bread, to becoming, convert them to Catholicism. So until the middle of the 20th century almost, there was this push to make bread, you know, the dominant starch. And it's only in the, since NAFTA 
I would say since the 90s, the tortilla, the maize tortilla, became the national symbol of Mexico. So it's also very recent. I mean, it's been eaten for, for centuries, almost for half a millennium, but it only became celebrated as the soul of Mexico uh, very recently. That's interesting because it's probably been identified as an American identity of Mexican culture for far longer. Well, as indigenous. Yeah. My guest today is Anya von Bremsen. Uh, her uh, book is titled National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home. And eventually you come to a home food, Borscht. And this is a poignant essay. Uh, it's written on the cusp of, uh, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, of course, this is a food fraught with who, where does Borscht come from? And, you know, who, who owns Borscht, if you will? Even though Borscht is eaten throughout Eastern Europe and, and, and of course, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, tell me about this essay and, and what you wanted to try to achieve with it. Well, I had a different ending in mind for the book. I wanted to do something on American Thanksgiving, huh. uh, which is such an important tradition in my multicultural neighborhood and to see how all these different cultures have kind of made it their own. But as I started writing it, the war broke out. Uh, Putin attacked Ukraine and it was, you know, I was born in Russia, but obviously we're anti-Putin uh, and we sympathize with Ukraine. And my mother has just made a big pot of borscht for me, which is a beet soup that I grew up eating in Moscow, you know, several times a week that was kind of part of our everyday life, like water, you know, like you don't think whose dish, you know, on whose heritage it is. It's just there and was part of the shared Soviet cuisine that has so many different uh, ethnic elements. Um, but then Russia did something very ugly uh, even before this current invasion, uh, the most recent invasion, uh, after it invaded Eastern Ukraine in 2014. You know, they said, well, Borscht is a Russian national dish, and Ukrainians don't really have any claim to it, and a lot of people in Ukraine got very upset, and they called it cultural appropriation, and they started sort of this drive um, to insist that it was a Ukraine, Ukrainian national dish, which it is, and to have it inscribed in UNESCO's intangible, uh, intangible cultural heritage list, uh, which it finally got. So as I ate and cooked borscht and talked to my mom, we sort of had to reject our Russian heritage because it was the culture of the invader. And my mom was, in fact, born in, in present-day Ukraine. She's from Odessa, and her family is from Odessa. And I have to really kind of reconsider my own identity. And um, during this horrible war, which was very painful and very poignant. Yeah. Well, it's a, a wonderful book. Uh, the name of the book is National Dish, uh, and it follows a whole line of uh, wonderful books on food, cookbooks, as well as a great memoir on your life. Uh, uh, Anya von Bremsen, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Rich. It's been a pleasure. Food writer and cookbook author Anya von Bremsen speaking with us here on Studio Tulsa. Her latest book is titled National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home. It's published by Penguin Press. <laughs> Well, that's Studio Tulsa for today. Our program is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests and commentators are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of KWGS or its licensee, the University of Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. 
Thanks for listening.